I don't know if you have ever been in the boat that I've been in a time or two before. And that is where I was sending a text message about someone to someone else. And I accidentally sent the text message that was about that someone to that someone. There's been a time or two where it was pretty painless. It wasn't a big deal. Pretty innocuous. But there was one time a number of years ago where I was in the midst of a heated dispute with a couple of friends regarding fantasy baseball. (laughs) And I fired off a text about one of my friends, I thought to another friend, but I fired it off to him. I quickly realized what I had done. I said, Stephen, you have two options here. You can own up to it and, and profusely apologize and, you know, just take your medicine, or you can dig in. Now, this was a number of years ago. It wasn't last week or anything, although I wouldn't be surprised if such behavior came from my sinful heart, even today. But nonetheless, I dug in, and I said, you know what? I didn't mean to send that to you, but I did. Let's talk about it. And we had our little disagreement, and thankfully, we're still friends to this day. That's what guys do. Uh, I say that because I want to ask, sometimes do you wonder what God thinks of you? Do you wonder perhaps what are the conversations that perhaps God the Father and God the Son would have about me? That Are there, are there secret back room conversations that if I were familiar with them, if I was privy to them, they would reveal things that were uncomfortable to me about God's attitude towards me? My friends, if we were to pierce the heart of Jesus Christ for us, we would find nothing but joy and love and a solid and steadfast commitment to our good. What I want to hold up for you from our passage this morning is that as Christians, we can know And we must live by the power of Jesus joyfully transforming us. There's a key emphasis, power there to that word joyfully. We're going to get to it in our text. Jesus does not do his work in us begrudgingly. But this is where I get to. If we were to pierce the heart of Jesus, what would we find overflowing out of it to us? We can and we must live by the power of Jesus' joyfully transforming work in us. Jesus promises to transform his people. We're going to see two steps in this passage. In verses 1 through 9, we're going to see the spectacular promise to transform us. And then in chapter 61 verse 10 through chapter 62 verse 7, we're going to see the joyful plan of how Jesus will transform us. A spectacular promise and a joyful plan. First, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Those words might sound familiar to you. It is possible not many of us have spent much prolonged time in these latter chapters of Isaiah. But you might hear these words and you think, I recognize that. Where do I recognize that from? They're the words that Jesus himself uses, quoting from this passage in Isaiah, to announce the beginning of his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4. If you were to go look at it later, it'd be in Luke 4, verses 18 to 22. Jesus announces himself as the one whom Isaiah 61 is anticipating. And interestingly, in Isaiah 61 and 62, as we're going to see today, we find something that we found once earlier in the book of Isaiah, where throughout the book of Isaiah, God has been speaking through the prophet Isaiah. But now, just in a few instances, we find this other being, this other figure who comes in and speaks, this servant of the Lord, this anointed one of God, whom we know to be King Jesus. He testified of this in his Gospels, as he said, even in Luke 4, this one in Isaiah, that's me. And we hear his voice saying, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I want to point something out to you that's very important, very fascinating even. If you were to go look at that passage in Luke 4, you would find that Jesus stops quoting at the end of the first part of verse 2, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But in Isaiah, it says proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the second part of verse 2, and the the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Well, here's what's happening. What Isaiah has, through God's supernatural work and giving him this prophecy and revealing it to him, is Isaiah is this traveler who has come upon two mountains sitting one in front of the other. And one of them is the mountain of Jesus' coming to earth, as is revealed and as is seen and testified of in the gospel accounts of his life and his death and his resurrection. The second mountain, the the one further back, is this mountain that is the the next coming of Christ. A coming that will not be like the the Gospels where he was born as a babe and came and uh, lived a perfectly sinless life, although he will be perfectly sinless, but where he died on the cross for sins. In the second coming, Jesus will come in order to rescue his people, but also in order to bring judgment and vengeance upon those who have brought evil into the world. And who have not turned to him in repentance and faith. And so Isaiah is this traveler who can't tell how far there is, how much time there is between these two mountains of Christ's coming. And Christ in Luke 4, quoting this, basically announces, hey, here I am, the first one. Where he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now we are living in this sense, in this 
journey between the two mountains. Christ has already come and His second coming we await. And so now we have the responsibility, if we are going to understand this, to rightly situate it between these two mountains and to respond accordingly. So Jesus says what He has come to do. He says at the end of verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. What Jesus has come to do is He has come to meet everyone in their greatest, deepest, most despairing need. And to meet them with a mercy and a grace that washes over them, grabs hold of them, and refuses to let go of them. He comes to rescue. He comes to redeem. He comes to save. This is the hope that we share as Christians. A hope that is grounded in knowledge of ourself and knowledge of Christ. You see, for one to understand what it means to follow Christ, they must understand themselves. And here's what I mean. Sometimes we are entirely out of touch with our great need for Christ. Well, one can't come to water and drink it in order not to die of thirst unless they recognize their sense of thirst. And so what the gospel confronts us with, what Jesus confronts his audience with in the gospels as he quotes this verse, as he quotes this section, as he confronts them with their own sin, with their own hard-heartedness against God. And yet his life unfolds in a manner where he calls them to come to him through repentance and live. And so what he shows us is that he meets the weary, the downtrodden, the poor, the broken, the mourning, the hurting. He meets them with mercy. Not the mercy of promising that all their problems will go away and they'll have no other issues. But the mercy of their Lord who has taken on human flesh and has come to dwell with them. And this is our hope as Christians, that our God dwells with us. Our God dwells in us. Our God will not leave us or forsake us. And he promises not only to meet his people in their need, but he promises to build them up in his goodness. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many gener- generations. And so if you remember the people of Judah, who are the original audience in Isaiah, 
their land had been destroyed, ravaged, pillaged. They had, many of them had been deported out of their homeland. And so going home was going to be similar to, uh, to, to, you know, when you try to rebuild after a bad storm has hit, when you try to chainsaw up trees and uh, tarp roofs and, and all of these things, but that on steroids, their cities in disre- disrepair, their families, their peoples torn in two. And what Jesus promises is not only that he will meet them in grace in the moment, but that he will sustain and build them up in grace in a lifetime. And my danger, my, my fear is that we as Christians, we accept the cross in our place for our sins and we and, and we, we even rejoice in that. Yet we are actually a little more hesitant Towards Christ doing this work of building us up. We want Jesus to be our co-pilot. Not the pilot. As some of you knew, know we were flying this week. And I was text messaging with Neil a little this week. And it was right before we got on the plane. He said, have a safe flight. And I just wrote back. Kind of sarcastically, well, on the list of people that are in control, if it's a safe flight or not, I'm actually pretty low on that list. Turns out it was a little higher because I have a three-year-old who's potty training and try to do that in a lavatory in turbulence. It's fun. We want Jesus to be the co-pilot sometimes, not the pilot. The pilot is the one that is in total control. Pilot is the one that you trust. Okay, he's going to put this plane in the air and he's going to put it on the ground all in one piece. And when we surrender our lives to Christ and we submit ourselves to him, we find ourselves that we have no option, but if we are going to come to him and earnestly seek his mercy, then we are going to have to earnestly trust the, 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 the road by which His mercy will take us on the course of our life. In one sense, the message of the gospel, the message of trusting in Jesus Christ, is not a one-time come to Jesus and all will be well. It is a every day, every moment, trusting in Jesus that He is at work in you. But the hope of that is, if we can get, get ourselves to that point of letting go of our pride, of letting go of our worries of what other people think of us, of letting go of our, of our, of our desires, our plans, our idols, of the things that we would stubbornly refuse to let go of, what we find is a Lord who does not want to take things away from us because He is a miser and a grinch, but a Lord who wants to take things away from us that He may give us more of Himself and build us up that we Feast on grace, on grace, on grace. And the tune of our lives is one of grace unending, His faithfulness ever sure. And all that we carry, we find He builds it up and pulls away all by grace. And let me ask you, dear Christian, Dear Christian who still struggles with anxiety over tomorrow. Dear Christian who struggles with issues with your body image. Dear Christian who struggles with mental health problems. Dear Christian who struggles with 
A sense of unease about the direction by which life is going. Dear Christian who says, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, and yet I am still walking through difficult circumstances, which I want to be clear, that is all of us, if we are honest. Do you recognize the promise of King Jesus, not only to save, but the promise of King Jesus to sanctify, to build up, to rescue, to sustain, to meet in mercy, The only question is, will we step back and allow him to do that? The spectacular promise of Jesus to transform us is one where nothing is left undone. Jesus does not come into our lives. I was never a fan of these shows, but you remember like the show, what was it? Um, the, the guy hosted its name was Ty, Real Home Makeover or America's Home Makeover or you know what I'm talking about. They'd put the bus in front of the house and then they'd pull it away and ah, our new house and, and all of that. And you know what, I've, I, I, I've never seen the show, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume something. Whenever they're doing the tour of the house afterwards, they don't like they don't like go, OK, here's your living room, here's your dining room. Oh, and you know that like horrible problem you had in the basement? Well, we, we weren't able to get to that yet. Sometimes we wonder if God is going to get to the things that we don't know if he's able to get to. But the promise of God to work his changing, unfolding grace in us is that he is and will get to everything in us. Not that we'll reach a point of perfection, but we will reach a point where, dear Christian, I pray and I hope that we can all grasp that even in the midst of whatever we have to navigate in life, whatever difficulties come our way, I pray and I hope that we will all grasp that the difficulties may not go away in this life, but we will one day look upon them with an awareness that they are difficulties that are drenched in grace. And they are even given to us in that moment that we may see the sufficiency of our Lord and trust Him in it. The scope of His transforming grace knows no ends. I don't want a Lord that just promises to get me to heaven. I want a Lord that is working out the glories of heaven even in my heart here today. Look at what else he promises going on in verses 5 through 9. He talks about in verses 5 to 7 how you who were once, you, you, were, you, were, you were ridiculed, you were mocked, you were, you were the scorn of the nations. The nations are going to look at you and they're going to see God's unending mercy to you. They're going to see your God is one who is sufficient. Your God is one who is precious. And trustworthy. Your God is one you can cling to in the midst of the storm. And I wanted you to see something radical in verses 8 and 9, okay? You see verse 8, the Lord says, kind of, kind of sealing up the promise of the full scope of his, of his commitment to work His grace out in our lives. To work His mercy, His goodness, His love out in our lives. He says in verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. 
And we read that and we say, okay, yeah, like, 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 yeah, okay, that's true. I've read things like that elsewhere in the Bible. It doesn't seem like it fits here, though. Like, God's talking about the good that he's going to do for his people. And then he just throws in there, I hate, I, 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 I hate robbery and wrong. I love justice. Like, what are you getting at, God? Or maybe I'm the only one that reads it. And it's like, why is that there? But you know why it's there? God is telling us to hold him to account. He's saying, I am going to prove myself faithful to you. He's saying, I, just as I hate robbery and wrong when it is committed by mankind, I hate it just as much that I assure you, I will not rob you of my blessing. says, I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Do you trust that the God who has redeemed you will work out his total purposes for you, leaving no stone unturned, leaving no hardship of your life, uncared for. He does not meet you with enough grace to handle some things. But that really tricky situation you're walking through, he doesn't say, sorry, I, 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 can't, I can't handle that one. If you were to read his text messages, if you were to read his email conversations about the care and the love that he has for you, he would have those alerted with exclamation marks. Don't lose this one here. Make sure he or she knows that I am with him. And that might be exactly what you need to hear right now because you've been doubting or questioning whether or not God is able to meet you in that specific situation that is one of the hardest of your life. Now, it's possible that you're hearing all this and you haven't yet entered into this life lived in the shadow and the experience of God's grace. God's grace is available to all who will come to Him through Jesus Christ. What does it mean to come to Him through Jesus Christ? It means to recognize that Jesus did not die on a cross because of an unfortunate turn of events. We don't look at the cross and say, wow, I can't believe that happened. And, and man, it's really a shame that Jesus had to do, do that. We look at the cross and we recognize that our sins against God were so great that they deserved His judgment and His punishment. Like He says, He loves justice. He cannot act unjustly. And yet, in this love of justice, in this commitment to justice, let's say, his commitment to justice is equaled by his love for us, and therefore that demands that he do one thing, and that be that he die in our place. So the invitation for you is to come to him through Jesus Christ by by repenting of your sin, by saying, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to do here, but Lord, I know I have sinned against you, and I am tired of trying to control my own life, and Lord, I want you to have control. And I surrender it all to you.
And the scope of his promises for you is not just that he assures you of his grace for eternity, but he assures you of his transforming power at work within you today. The question is, will you come? But not only does he give us a spectacular promise of Jesus to transform us. Secondly, in verses 10 through 62, verse 7, we see a joyful plan of how Jesus will do this. Look at verse 10. I will greatly... Remember, this is Jesus speaking. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is beautiful. You see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I rejoice in the Lord. My soul exalts in God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. They're saying, you want, you want salvation? You want eternal life? You want the burdens of your heart lifted? You want the, the weights of your soul uh, uh, buoyed by something greater than you that can sustain you? Jesus says, it is me. It is me. And what, what is the course of his life? He quotes this. He quotes Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. And then what does he do through the course of his life? He meets people in their need, in their sickness, in their blindness, in their poverty, in their, in their illness, in their great need. And all of these needs leading up to the great need that we all have, the greatest need, and that is atonement for our sins. And Jesus meets his people in these. And he says, my solution for you is to give you myself. He is clothed with salvation. And so we come to Him and we find covering in our need. In the poverty of our soul. In the dark, cold night of our loneliness. He is covered with righteousness. And we come to Him and find healing. And then He promises in verse 11, look at this. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. All who come to the Lord Jesus and find that life in Him, they will be built up to the praise of His name. As the old man, the old woman is is slowly, slowly, slowly transformed into the image of Christ-likeness. Coming day by day more and more and more and more like King Jesus. And this verse just sits especially beautiful in the spring. As the earth brings forth its sprout, as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. I planted some flowers this year and I'm having the most difficult time with them. I think they're already dead. I planted them like two and a half weeks ago. And not to brag, but I'm normally pretty good at this kind of thing. I mean, people in the neighborhood, they like our flowers. Not to brag, but I'm kind of bragging. But this year, we're off to a rough start. 
I praise God that there are no bad batches in the lump of Christians that Jesus has. There is no runt of the litter. There's no scrawny one who doesn't pass muster. You know why? Because we, the, the muster we pass, the runt of the litter, the strong one, they all are alive solely by virtue of Jesus Christ. Our hope rests in Him and in Him alone. From the strongest to the weakest. There are no junior varsity Christians. We're all junior varsity. We're all desperate beggars in need of great grace. And we are all, though we're shedding leaves and though we feel like we might be parched and we need watering, He is the living water that nourishes and sustains and builds us up and keeps us day by day by day. And He promises, just as the sureness of His death on the cross to atone for our sins, the sureness of His hand, of His strength to keep us in His hand and never let us go. And look at how He promises to never let us go in, verse six, in, in chapter 62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. What Jesus is saying here is I will not stop Praying for my people. That's what he's committing. Do you know what Jesus is doing for you, for us, right now? He is praying. He is working his salvation out in you who call upon him. He is accomplishing his good purposes for us. He does not put us on a plan where it's like, all right, I put you on the train here, and I expect that you'll arrive to heaven on this date, and I'll see you, and hopefully you make it. Hopefully there's no derailments. No, he is the one who is with us, sustaining us, strengthening us, carrying us on the journey. And so you see at the end of chapter 61, where he talks, he works all this out for what? For the righteousness of his people and the praise of his name. You see that at the end of chapter 61? And say, what does it say to, what does it mean to grow as a Christian? It means that, 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 that we grow in righteousness, in trusting Christ, forsaking sin, and in clinging to His promises, His word, trying to walk in obedience to Him, and we grow as we see the power of the gospel, the wonder of Christ, crucifixion, death, resurrection, atonement, uh, uh, ascension, reign over us, promise to come again for us. We see all of that, and we can't help but praise His name. And so as we see the wonder of the gospel, we are grown in righteousness and in praise. And this is what I pray for us as a church. Righteousness and praise. And this will be the heartbeat, the cry of our life together as the people of Christ. And he says back in verse 10 of chapter 61, how does he promise to do this? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord in this work. Dear Christian, Jesus does not look at you begrudgingly. He does not look at you with indifference. He looks at you with a heart that is bursting with joy. A commitment to transform you into His image that is so strong that He grounded that commitment in His blood. 
And he will transform us. We shall be made whole in him. He uses imagery in verses 4 and 5 of a marriage. Of people who were made, who were incomplete, being made complete. Not saying someone is incomplete if they are unmarried. Jesus himself would be incomplete in that scenario. But the imagery here is of one who is lonely and needs delight. And finding one in the King Jesus who delights in him or her more than they know. His commitment to us is complete. And our experience of his transforming grace is full. Verses six and seven, he says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. Until he establishes Jerusalem. And makes it a praise in the earth. Do you see this? Do you see this? He's saying put the Lord to the test. You don't think God can do this? You don't think this Jesus is faithful? Put him to the test. And how do we put him to the test? He's saying, he's telling us here. The chief way is in our prayer. They shall never be silent, verse 6. All the day, all the night. Pray, go before the Lord. Take hold of the promises of the gospel and refuse to let them go. He's laying before us the prayers of our Savior. The responsibility that we have to pray for His work in us to be completed. And he shows us that this is the way that God works in us. Otto Christian Halsby was a Norwegian theologian who resisted the Nazis during World War II and suffered for it in a concentration camp. He understood what it meant to pray all the way through. He said that prayer is like mining. Prayer is like boring holes deep into the rock of human hearts. It's work. It tries our patience. We can't see results. But in God's time, He places the dynamite and lights the fuse. And the rocks crumble. God here calls us to not let Him rest. Until He makes a revived church. The praise of the earth. That revival is found in seeing and savoring King Jesus Christ. Who is joyfully transforming us by setting our hearts on him and on him alone. God, keep us from believing he can't do this work in us. But also keep us from any kind of indifference that views prayer as, as, as a secondary matter. 
of, 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 of lack of importance. This is one reason why we make prayer a significant part of our gathering each week. It's not just a time where we transition between things in the service. It's a time where we take God's promises to heart. And we pray for things like school shootings and their aftermath. And we pray for global pandemics. And we pray for animosity and hatred and division in our world. And we don't just pray for these things thinking, oh, well, we have nothing else to do. We pray knowing that God is the one who can work in these. And we pray for our hearts and His church that He would build us up by grace. By letting us grab hold of this Christ who has grabbed hold of us and never letting go. If our Lord Jesus has been praying for us ever since that day He ascended to the throne of the Father 40 days after His resurrection, ought we not to be a people committed to prayer and trusting in this joyful Savior who will not let us go.